Section 23 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 12. Part 2. 14. The remaining part of discipline, which is not, strictly speaking, included in the power of the keys, is when pastors, according to the necessity of the times, exhort the people either to fasting and solemn prayer, or to other exercises of humiliation, repentance, and faith. The time, mode, and form of these not being prescribed by the word of God, but left to the judgment of the church. As the observance of this part of discipline is useful, so it was always used in the church, even from the days of the apostles. Indeed, the apostles themselves were not its first authors, but borrowed the example from the law and prophets. For we there see that as often as any weighty matter occurred, the people were assembled and supplication and fasting appointed. In this, therefore, the apostles followed a course which was not new to the people of God, and which they foresaw would be useful. A similar account is to be given of the other exercises by which the people may either be aroused to duty, or kept in duty and obedience. We everywhere meet with examples in sacred history, and it is unnecessary to collect them. In general, we must hold that whenever any religious controversy arises, which either a council or ecclesiastical tribunal behoves it to decide. Whenever a minister is to be chosen, whenever, in short, any matter of difficulty and great importance is under consideration. On the other hand, when manifestations of the divine anger appear, as pestilence, war, and famine, the sacred and solitary custom of all ages has been for pastors to exhort the people to public fasting and extraordinary prayer. Should anyone refuse to admit the passages which are adduced from the Old Testament as being less applicable to the Christian church, it is clear that the apostles also acted thus. Although, in regard to prayer, I scarcely think anyone will be found to stir the question. Let us, therefore, make some observance on fasting, since very many, not understanding what utility there can be in it, judge it not to be very necessary, while others reject it altogether as superfluous. Where its use is not well known, it is easy to fall into superstition. 15. A holy and lawful fast has three ends in view. We use it either to mortify and subdue the flesh, that it may not wanton, or to prepare the better for prayer and holy meditation, or to give evidence of humbling ourselves before God when we would confess our guilt before Him. The first end is not very often regarded in public fasting, because all have not the same bodily constitution, nor the same state of health, and hence it is more applicable to private fasting. The second end is common to both, for this preparation for prayer is requisite for the whole church, as well as for each individual member. The same thing may be said of the third, 
For it sometimes happens that God smites a nation with war or pestilence, or some kind of calamity. In this common chastisement it behoves the whole people to plead guilty and confess their guilt. Should the hand of the Lord strike anyone in private, then the same thing is to be done by himself alone, or by his family. The thing, indeed, is properly a feeling of the mind, but when the mind is affected as it ought, it cannot but give vent to itself in external manifestations, especially when it tends to the common edification, that all, by openly confessing their sin, may render praise to the divine justice, and by their example mutually encourage each other. 16. Hence fasting, as it is a sign of humiliation, has a more frequent use in public than among private individuals, although we have said it is common to both. In regard, then, to the discipline of which we now treat, whenever supplication is to be made to God on any important occasion, it is befitting to appoint a period for fasting and prayer. Thus, when the Christians of Antioch laid hands on Barnabas and Paul, that they might the better recommend their ministry, which was of so great importance, they joined fasting and prayer. Acts 13, verse 3. Thus, these two apostles afterward, when they appointed ministers to churches, were wont to use prayer and fasting. Acts 14, verse 23. In general, the only object which they had in fasting was to render themselves more alert and disencumbered for prayer. We certainly experience that after a full meal, the mind does not so rise toward God as to be borne along by an earnest and fervent longing for prayer and perseverance in prayer. In this sense, it is to be understood the saying of Luke concerning Anna that she, quote, served God with fastings and prayers night and day. End quote. Luke 2, verse 37. For he does not place the worship of God in fasting, but intimates that in this way the holy woman trained herself to assiduity in prayer. Such was the fast of Nehemiah, when with more intense zeal he prayed to God for the deliverance of his people. Nehemiah 1, verse 4. For this reason, Paul says, that married believers do well to abstain for a season, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, that they may have greater freedom for prayer and fasting, when by joining prayer to fasting by way of help, he reminds us it is of no importance in itself, save in so far as to refer to its end. Again, when in the same place he enjoins spouses to render due benevolence to each other, it is clear that he is not referring to daily prayer, but prayers which require more than ordinary attention. 17. On the other hand, when pestilence begins to stalk abroad, or famine or war, or when any other disaster seems to impend over a province and people, Esther 4, verse 16, then also it is the duty of pastors to exhort the church to fasting, that she may suppliantly deprecate the Lord's anger. For when he makes danger appear, he declares that he is prepared and in a manner armed for vengeance. In like manner, therefore, as persons accused were anciently wont, in order to excite the commiseration of the judge, to humble themselves suppliantly with long beard, disheveled hair, and coarse garments, 
so when we are changed before the divine tribunal to deprecate his severity in humble raiment is equally for his glory and the public edification and useful and sulatory to ourselves and that this was common among the israelites we may infer from the words of joel for when he says quote, blow the trumpet in zion sanctify a fast call a solemn assembly unquote, etc joel two verse fifteen he speaks as of things received by common custom a little before he had said that the people were to be tried for their wickedness and that the day of judgment was at hand and he had summoned them as criminals to plead their cause then he exclaims that they should hasten to sackcloth and ashes to weeping and fasting that is humble themselves before god with external manifestations the sackcloth and ashes indeed were perhaps more suitable for those times but the assembly and weeping and fasting and the like undoubtedly belong in an equal degree to our age whenever the condition of our affairs so requires foreseeing it is a holy exercise both for men to humble themselves and confess their humility why should we in similar necessity use this less than did those of old we read not only that the israelitish church formed and constituted by the word of god fasted in token of sadness but the ninevites also whose only teaching had been the preaching of jonah why therefore should not we do the same it is an external ceremony which like other ceremonies terminated in christ nay in the present day it is an admirable help to believers as it always was and a useful admonition to arouse them lest by too great security and sloth they provoke the lord more and more when they are chastised by his rod accordingly when our saviour excuses his apostles for not fasting he does not say that fasting was abrogated but reserves it for calamitous times and conjoins it with mourning quote, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them end quote. matthew nine verse thirty five and luke five verse thirty four eighteen but that there may be no error in the name let us define what fasting is for we do not understand by it simply a restrained and sparing use of food but something else the life of the pious should be tempered with frugality and sobriety so as to exhibit as much as may be a kind of fasting during the whole course of life but there is another temporary fast when we retrench somewhat from our accustomed mode of living either for one day or a certain period and prescribe to ourselves a stricter and severer restraint in the use of that ordinary food this consists in three things viz the time the quality of food and the sparing use of it by the time i mean that while fasting we are to perform those actions for the sake of which the fast is instituted for example when a man fasts because of solemn prayer he should engage in it without having taken food the quality consists in putting all luxury aside and being contented with common and meaner food so as not to excite our palate by dainties in regard to quantity we must eat more lightly and sparingly only for necessity and not for pleasure nineteen but the first thing always to be avoided is 
the encroachment of superstition, as formerly happened, to the great injury of the church. It would have been much better to have had no fasting at all, than have it carefully observed, but at the same time corrupted by false and pernicious opinions, into which the world is ever and anon falling, unless pastors obviate them by the greatest fidelity and prudence. The first thing is constantly to urge the injunction of Joel, rend your heart, not your garments, Joel 2, verse 13. That is, to remind the people that fasting in itself is not of great value in the sight of God, unless accompanied with internal affection of the heart, true dissatisfaction with sin and with oneself, true humiliation, and true grief from the fear of God. Nay, that fasting is useful for no other reason than because it is added to these as an inferior help. There is nothing which God more abominates than when men endeavor to cloak themselves by substituting signs and external appearances for integrity of heart. Accordingly, Isaiah inveighs most bitterly against the hypocrisy of the Jews, in thinking that they had satisfied God when they had merely fasted, whatever might be the impiety and impure thoughts which they cherished in their hearts. Quote, Is it such a fast that I have chosen? End quote. Isaiah 58, verse 5. See also what follows. The fast of hypocrites is, therefore, not only useless and superfluous fatigue, but the greatest abomination. Another evil akin to this, and greatly to be avoided, is to regard fasting as a meritorious work and a species of divine worship. For seeing it is a thing which is in itself indifferent, and has no importance except on account of those ends to which it ought to have respect, it is a most pernicious superstition to confound it with the works enjoined by God, and which are necessary in themselves without reference to anything else. Such was anciently the dream of the Manichees, in refuting whom Augustine clearly shows, that fasting is to be esteemed entirely by those ends which I have mentioned, and cannot be approved by God, unless in so far as it refers to them. Another error, not indeed so impious, but perilous, is to exact it with greater strictness and severity as one of the principal duties, and extol it with such extravagant encomiums as to make men imagine that they have done something admirable when they have fasted. In this respect, I dare not entirely excuse ancient writers from having sown some seeds of superstition, and given occasion to the tyranny which afterwards arose. We sometimes meet with sound and prudent sentiments on fasting, but we also ever and anon meet with extravagant praises, lauding it as one of the cardinal virtues. 20. Then the superstitious observance of Lent had everywhere prevailed, for both the vulgar imagined that they thereby performed some excellent service to God, and pastors commended it as a holy imitation of Christ though it is plain that Christ did not fast to set an example to others, but, by thus commencing the preaching of the gospel, meant to prove that his doctrine was not of men, but had come from heaven. And it is strange how men of acute judgment could fall into this gross delusion, which so many clear reasons refute. For Christ did not fast repeatedly, which he must have done had he meant to lay down a law for an anniversary fast, but once only, when preparing for the promulgation of the gospel. Nor does he fast after the manner of men, as he would have done had he meant to invite men to imitation. 
he rather gives an example by which he may raise all to admire rather than study to imitate him. In short, the nature of his fast is not different from that which Moses observed when he received the law at the hand of the Lord. Exodus 24, verse 18, and 34, verse 28. For, seeing that that miracle was performed in Moses to establish the law, it behooved not to be omitted in Christ, lest the gospel should seem inferior to the law. But from that day it never occurred to anyone, under pretense of imitating Moses, to set up a similar form of fast among the Israelites. Nor did any of the holy prophets and fathers follow it, though they had inclination and zeal enough for all pious exercises. For though it is said of Elijah that he passed forty days without meat and drink, 1 Kings 19, verse 8. This was merely in order that the people might recognize that he was raised up to maintain the law, from which almost the whole of Israel had revolted. It was therefore merely false zeal, repleted with superstition, which set up a fast under the title and pretext of imitating Christ. Although there was then a strange diversity in the mode of the fast, as is related by Cassidorius in the ninth book of the history of Socrates, the Romans, he said, had only three weeks, but their fast was continuous, except on the Lord's day and the Sabbath. The Greeks and Illyrians had some six, others seven, but the fast was at intervals. Nor did they differ less in the kind of food. Some used only bread and water, others added vegetables, others had no objection to fish and fowls, others made no difference in their food. Augustine also makes mention of this difference in his latter epistle to Januarius. 21. Worse times followed. To the absurd zeal of the vulgar were added rudeness and ignorance in the bishops, lust of power, and tyrannical rigor. Impious laws were passed, binding the conscience in deadly chains. The eating of flesh was forbidden, as if a man were contaminated by it. Sacrilegious opinions were added, one after another, until all became an abyss of error. And that no kind of depravity might be omitted, they began, under a most absurd pretense of abstinence, to make a mock of God. For in the most exquisite delicacies they seek the praise of fasting. No dainties now suffice. Never was there greater abundance or variety or savoriness of food. In this splendid display they think that they serve God, I do not mention that at no time do those who would be thought the holiest of them wallow most foully. In short, the highest worship of God is to abstain from flesh, and, with this reservation, to indulge in delicacies of every kind. On the other hand, it is the greatest impiety, impiety scarcely to be expiated by death, for anyone to taste the smallest portion of banquet or rancid flesh with his bread. Jerome, writing to Napoleon, relates that even in his day there were some who mocked God with such follies. Those who would not even put oil in their food caused the greatest delicacies to be procured from every quarter. Nay, that they might do violence to nature, abstained from drinking water, and caused sweet and costly potions to be made for them, which they drank, not out of a cup, but a shell. What was then the fault of a few is now common among all the rich. 
they do not fast for any other purpose than to feast more richly and luxuriously. But I am unwilling to waste many words on a subject as to which there can be no doubt. All I say is that, as well in fast as in other parts of discipline, the papists are so far from having anything right, anything sincere, anything duly framed and ordered, that they have no occasion to plume themselves as if anything was left them that is worthy of praise. 22. We come now to the second part of discipline, which relates specially to clergy. It is contained in the canons which the ancient bishops framed for themselves and their order. For instance, let no clergyman spend his time in hunting, in gaming, or in feasting. Let none engage in usury or in trade. Let none be present at lascivious dances, and the like. Penalties also were added to give a sanction to the authority of the canons, that none might violate them with impunity. With this view, each bishop was entrusted with the superintendence of his own clergy, that he might govern them according to the canons and keep them to their duty. For this purpose, certain annual visitations and synods were appointed, that if any one was negligent in his office, he might be admonished. If any one sinned, he might be punished according to his fault. The bishops also had their provincial synods once, anciently twice a year, by which they were tried, if they had done anything contrary to their duty. For if any bishop had been too harsh or violent with his clergy, there was an appeal to the synod, though only one individual complained. The severest punishment was deposition from office, and exclusion, for a time, from communion. But as this was the uniform arrangement, no synod rose without fixing the time and place of the next meeting. To call a universal council belonged to the emperor alone, as all the ancient summonings testify. As long as this strictness was in force, the clergy demanded no more in word from the people than they performed in act and by example. Nay, they were more strict against themselves than the vulgar, and, indeed, it is becoming that the people should be ruled by a kindlier and, if I may so speak, laxer discipline, that the clergy should be stricter in their censures and less indulgent to themselves than to others. How this whole procedure became obsolete it is needless to relate, since, in the present day, nothing can be imagined more lawless and dissolute than this order whose licentiousness is so extreme that the whole world is crying out. I admit that, in order not to seem to have lost all sight of antiquity, they, by certain shadows, deceive the eyes of the simple. But these no more resemble the ancient customs than the mimicry of an ape resembles what men do by reason and counsel. There is a memorable passage in Xenophon in which he mentions that when the Persians had shamefully degenerated from the customs of their ancestors and had fallen away from an austere mode of life to luxury and effeminacy, they still, to hide the disgrace, were sedulously observant of ancient rites. For a while, in the time of Sirius, sobriety and temperance so flourished that no Persian required to wipe his nose, and it was even deemed disgraceful to do so. It remained with their posterity, as a point of religion, not to remove the mucus from the nostril, though they were allowed to nourish within, even to putridity, those fetid humors which they had contracted by gluttony. In like manner, 
according to the ancient custom, it was unlawful to use cups at table, but it was quite tolerable to swallow wine, so as to make it necessary to be carried off drunk. It was enjoined to use only one meal a day. This these good successors did not abrogate, but they continued their surfeit from midday to midnight. To finish the day's march, fasting, as the law enjoined it, was the uniform custom. But in order to avoid lassitude, the allowed and usual custom was to limit the march to two hours. As often as the degenerate papists obtrude their rules that they may show their resemblance to the Holy Fathers, this example will serve to expose their ridiculous imitation. Indeed, no painter could paint them more to life. 23. In one thing they are more than rigid and inexorable, in not permitting priests to marry. It is of no consequence to mention with what impunity whoredom prevails among them, and how, trusting to their vile celibacy, they have become callous to all kinds of iniquity. The prohibition, however, clearly shows how pestiferous all traditions are, since this one has not only deprived the church of fit and honest pastors, but has introduced a fearful sink of iniquity, and plunged many souls into the gulf of despair. Certainly, when marriage was interdicted to priests, it was done with impious tyranny, not only contrary to the word of God, but contrary to all justice. First, men had no title whatever to forbid what God had left free. Secondly, it is too clear to make it necessary to give any lengthened proof that God has expressly provided in his word that this liberty should not be infringed. I omit Paul's injunction, in numerous passages, that a bishop be the husband of one wife. But what could be stronger than his declaration, that in the latter days there would be impious men, quote, forbidding to marry, unquote, 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. Such persons he calls not only impostors, but devils. We have therefore a prophecy, a sacred oracle of the Holy Spirit, intended to warn the church from the outset against perils, and declaring that the prohibition of marriage is a doctrine of devils. They think that they get finally off when they wrest this passage and apply it to Montanus, the Tatians, the Encratites, and other ancient heretics. These, they say, alone condemned marriage. We by no means condemn it, but only deny it to the ecclesiastical order, in whom we think it not befitting. As if, even granting that this prophecy was primarily fulfilled in these heretics, it is not applicable also to themselves, or, as if one could listen to the childish quibble that they do not forbid marriage, because they do not forbid it to all. This is just as if a tyrant were to contend that a law is not unjust, because its injustice presses only on a part of the state. 24. They object that there ought to be some distinguishing mark between the clergy and the people, as if the Lord had not provided the ornaments in which priests ought to excel. Thus they charged the apostle with having disturbed the ecclesiastical order, and destroyed its ornament, when, in drawing the picture of a perfect bishop, he presumed to set down marriage among the other endowments which he required of them. I am aware of the mode in which they expound this, viz., that no one was to be appointed a bishop who had a second wife. 
This interpretation, I admit, is not new, but its unsoundness is plain from the immediate context, which prescribes the kind of wives whom bishops and deacons ought to have. Paul enumerates marriage among the qualities of a bishop. Those men declare that, in the ecclesiastical order, marriage is an intolerable vice, and, indeed, not content with this general vituperation, they term it, in their canons, the uncleanness and pollution of the flesh. Let everyone consider with himself from what forge these things have come. Christ deems so to honor marriage as to make it an image of a sacred union with the church. What greater eulogy could be pronounced on the dignity of marriage? How, then, dare they have the effrontery to give the name of unclean and polluted to that which furnishes a bright representation of the spiritual grace of Christ? 25. Though their prohibition is thus clearly repugnant to the word of God, they, however, find something in the scriptures to defend it. The Levitical priests, as often as their ministerial course returned, behooved to keep apart from their wives, that they might be pure and immaculate in handling sacred things. And it were therefore very indecorous that our sacred things, which are more noble and are ministered every day, should be handled by those who are married. As if the evangelical ministry were of the same character as the Levitical priesthood. These, as types, represented Christ, who, as mediator between God and men, was, by his own spotless purity, to reconcile us to the Father, but as sinners could not in every respect exhibit a type of his holiness, that they might, however, shadow it forth by certain lineaments, they were enjoined to purify themselves beyond the manner of men when they approached the sanctuary, inasmuch as they then properly prefigured Christ appearing in the tabernacle, an image of the heavenly tribunal, as pacificators to reconcile men to God. As ecclesiastical pastors do not sustain this character in the present day, the comparison is made in vain. Whenever the apostle declares distinctly, without reservation, quote, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, end quote, Hebrews 13, verse 4. And the apostles showed, by their own example, that marriage is not unbefitting the holiness of any function, however excellent. For Paul declares that they not only retained their wives, but led them about with them. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. 26. Then how great the effrontery when, in holding forth this ornament of chastity as a matter of necessity, they throw the greatest obloquy on the primitive church, which, while it abounded in admirable divine erudition, excelled more in holiness. For if they pay no regard to the apostles, they are sometimes wont strenuously to contemn them. What, I ask, will they make of all the ancient fathers who, it is certain, not only tolerated marriage in the Episcopal order, but also approved it? They, forsooth, encouraged a foul profanation of sacred things when the mysteries of the Lord were thus irregularly performed by them. In the Council of Nice, indeed, there was some question of proclaiming celibacy, as there are never wanting little men of superstitious minds, who are always devising some novelty as a means of gaining admiration for themselves. What was resolved? The opinion of Paphnutius was adopted, 
who pronounced legitimate conjugal intercourse to be chastity. The marriage of priests, therefore, continued sacred, and was neither regarded as a disgrace, nor thought to cast any stain on their ministry. 27. In the times which succeeded, a too superstitious admiration of celibacy prevailed. Hence, ever and anon, unmeasured acrimoniums were pronounced on virginity, so that it became the vulgar belief that scarcely any virtue was to be compared to it. And although marriage was not condemned as impurity, yet its dignity was lessened and its sanctity obscured, so that he who did not refrain from it was deemed not to have a mind strong enough to aspire to perfection. Hence those canons which enacted, first, that those who had attained the priesthood should not contract marriage, and, secondly, that none should be admitted to that order but the unmarried, or those who, with the consent of their wives, renounced the marriage bed. These enactments, as they seemed to procure reverence for the priesthood, were, I admit, received even in ancient times with great applause. But if my opponents plead antiquity, my first answer is that both under the apostles and for several ages after, bishops were at liberty to have wives, that the apostles themselves and other pastors of primitive authority who succeeded them had no difficulty in using that liberty, and that the example of the primitive church ought justly to have more weight than allow us to think that what was then received and used with commendation is either illicit or unbecoming. My second answer is that the age which, from an immoderate affection for virginity, began to be less favorable to marriage, did not bind a law of celibacy on the priest, as if the thing were necessary in itself, but gave a preference to the unmarried over the married. My last answer is that they did not exact this so rigidly as to make continence necessary and compulsory on those who were unfit for it. For while the strictest laws were made against fornication, it was only enacted with regard to those who contracted marriage that they should be superseded in their office. 28. Therefore, as often as the defenders of this new tyranny appeal to antiquity in defense of their celibacy, so often should we call upon them to restore the ancient chastity of their priests, to put away adulterers and whoremongers, not to allow those who they deny an honorable and chaste use of marriage, to rush with impunity into every kind of lust, to bring back that obsolete discipline by which all licentiousness is restrained, and free the church from the flagitist turpitude by which it has long been deformed. When they have conceded this, they will next require to be reminded not to represent as necessary that which, being in itself free, depends on the utility of the church. I do not, however, speak thus as if I thought that on any condition whatever effect should be given to those canons which lay a bond of celibacy on the ecclesiastical order, but that the better-hearted may understand the effrontery of our enemies in employing the name of antiquity to defame the holy marriage of priests. In regard to the fathers, whose writings are extant, none of them, when they spoke their own mind, with the exception of Jerome, thus malignantly detracted from the honor of marriage. We will be contented with a single passage from Chrysostom, because he being a special admirer of virginity, cannot be thought to be more lavish than others in praise of matrimony. 
Chrysostom thus speaks, quote, The first degree of chastity is pure virginity, the second, faithful marriage. Therefore, a chaste love of matrimony is the second species of virginity. End, quote. End of section 23